Hey, this is Aaron here to let you know that this episode of The War on Cars is sponsored by Cleverhood. Cleverhood makes rain capes designed specifically for people who bike and walk. I've been wearing Cleverhoods for years. I'm a huge fan. If I am biking or walking the dog and it is raining, I am wearing a Cleverhood. And you can too. Starting today, and for a limited time only, listeners of The War on Cars will receive a 20% discount on every product in the Cleverhood store. To get that discount, go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars, and when you check out, enter coupon code WARONCARS, one word. Again, for 20% off on some really nice rain gear, go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars, enter coupon code WARONCARS when you check out. Stay safe and dry when you walk and bike. Wear a clever hood. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. This is The War on Cars. I'm Doug Gordon. On previous episodes of the podcast, I've said that cars are the internet comment section of the real world. When you're driving, you can remain more or less anonymous if you want to. Maybe you behave in ways you never would face-to-face. And long before people were posting memes on Twitter, they were communicating everything from jokes to their political beliefs to the fact that their kid made the honor roll at a local high school on bumper stickers. So in that sense, just like your Facebook page is an extension of your identity, and often the first or maybe only impression other people have of it, your car is sort of the same thing. But the similarities between the internet and driving don't end there, and it was with this in mind that I wanted to talk to one of my favorite people on the internet, Anil Dash. Anil is well-known in tech circles. He is a blogging pioneer, and I remember reading him way back in the early 2000s. You might know him from his presence on Twitter, where he is at Anil Dash, or from his writing in Wired Magazine. He currently serves as the CEO of Glitch, a platform for app developers. Anil is also a regular bike share user and a huge fan of Prince, something you'll hear about later. More than anything, Anil is a sharp and thoughtful critic of the industry in which he's worked for his entire career. And as he puts it in his bio, he is an advocate for more humane, inclusive, and ethical technology. And if you zero in on those three words, humane, inclusive, ethical, I think those have a lot of overlap with my own personal vision of how streets should work, the podcast view of how streets should work, and hopefully yours. So enjoy my talk with Anil Dash. Anil Dash, welcome to The War on Cars. Thanks so much for having me. So for people who don't know you very well, you are primarily focused on tech, both in your professional life, your, your personal interests, which we will get into, but you know, every now and then you you dip your toes into issues related to safe streets, cycling, things like that. How did you arrive at this perspective? How did you incorporate this into your worldview? That's a great question. It it was not something I was sort of born to or fluent in. Um, and and my background, as you said, is you know I'm I'm a tech guy. I've worked at startups and and made software and and that kind of stuff for a long time. Um, and and there were sort of two genesis points for me. You know, one was. 
my father is a civil engineer by trade. He did it for 40 years working for uh, first the state of Pennsylvania and then later California's uh, Department of Transportation. And I would go with him to job sites, uh, construction sites. This is like my nerding out as a kid and see how highways were made, see how streets were made. And, and it just stayed with me of like infrastructure, transportation, moving people around is a thing we do. It, it's almost like it's a trade that you can have. Uh, in the way that you know somebody else would be like my family makes you know wine or you know whatever whatever it was and and that really stayed with me and then the other was actually I think very tied to the way I see technology my love for technology which is that I love systems like I really love how do you make a system you know in my case how do you make a uh, a tool that like a million people want to share their photos on or that a billion people you know want to want to I don't love the billion people uh, networks like Facebook too much but but even just that idea you're going to build a, a tool that all these people are going to use in their daily lives and and then when you think of it through that lens of we as humans have the ability to build systems that can be part of the daily life of everybody around us you can't not be just mesmerized by transportation by everything around us that we do to get where we're going and that it's a this emotional visceral like I, i'm a fan like my i approach it like like it's a um you know a band that i like or an artist that i love or or whatever like like transportation to me is this thing that is ceaselessly inventive and interesting and and challenging and and so that's been it's a very different lens than i think what any professional or expert would have like it, for me it's just like this thing that is ceaselessly interesting. And then, and then, you know, very functional too, which is that I do ride my bike to get around and I do, you know, I do use, you know, a, a city bike to go everywhere I go and I do rely on our systems. And, and so I care about them as a citizen too. Yeah. I think what you've defined is sort of what I would call being a noticer that people who are interested in systems tend to be people who from a very early age, and I was like this, couldn't help but walk through life just noticing things. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of mm -hmm. very famous way I think Colson Whitehead talks about, you know, walking through the city and noticing when a store changes from the cell phone store to a hair salon and, and realizing that that used to be different. It's like a switch that's turned on in your brain that I think if you're a noticer, you, you can't turn off. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you, you mentioned riding city bike. Um, what drew you to live in New York then? You said you mentioned having lived in Pennsylvania and California. What brought you here? Well, you know, I grew up in suburban rural Pennsylvania, and um, it was uh, incredibly uh, racially homogenous. Our, our family was essentially the first people of color to live in our town. We were uh, years later, after my folks had had retired to California, I went back to my hometown in Pennsylvania, and I remember just having this conversation with my mother. Where I was like, you know, growing up, I was like, I felt like it didn't fit in, and then I thought about the fact that we, my parents, spoke a different language at home. We ate different food. We practiced a different religion. I listened to different music. We wore different clothes. I think I felt like I didn't fit in because I didn't right, fit right. in. <laughs> you know, like I, I have deduced, I've diagnosed the issue. And then, you know, it's so obvious in retrospect, but I think as a kid, you don't think about that. And then I had, like everyone, been to New York when, when you know, you go on a vacation or, or certainly in our case, whenever anyone would visit from India, whether it was our, you know, distant family members or even people who were like new immigrants that would, uh, you know, be staying with us, they'd always be like, we want to see, you know, the Statue of Liberty, we want to see the Empire State Building. And we would come up to New York and I would always come, you know, tag along on those trips. And and I just remember having this almost sense of inevitability. It was, and this is funny because in retrospect, this is the 
the moment that I think New York was most vilified to the rest of America. This is definitely, you know, graffiti on the subways and 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 the you know sort of worst lowest uh, uh, Bernie Getz caricatures of what New York was. And I had I was the emoji with of the smiley face with the hearts for the eyes looking around New York. I just was like, this is the place. This is where I was supposed to be. And and it, and it was really actually not more complicated than that for me. You know, being a teenager, seeing it and be like, I need to be here. And you know, summer I was twenty one. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a job. I packed up everything I had. I moved to the city. And and I think um, I was very fortunate to be so naive and foolish as to do so um, because. You know, within five minutes, I was like, this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. When you started riding a bike in the city, was it when you first moved here? Or you mentioned city bike. When did you start? It actually, uh, you know, it was not when I moved here. I, I had, um, because I'd grown up in the suburbs, I had a car the first, <laughs> the first like summer I lived in New York. And I mean, if you grow up in America, you're taught, you're taught in the suburbs of the car's freedom. And, and actually, in truth, it is there because what was I going to, like, I couldn't get to the mall. I couldn't get to the, the record store, you know, without a car. But I got, you know, I got here and after a onslaught of, you know, parking tickets and, and everything else, I was like, oh, I, I've made a, a systemic error. I have a category error in what I think this place is and how you navigate it. And that was a revelation because it, it was, and again, I think part of this was being 21 years old. What other lies have I been told? What other, you know, sort of wool has been pulled over my eyes about what I'm supposed to do? That was really, it was exciting. It was exciting to be, to have revealed to me that the car was a lie because it had been a stress, a constant stress. It's expensive to have a car. It's expensive to have insurance. It's expensive to park. It was, you know, gas, like all those things. And I was constantly stressed out because I was broke and all that other stuff. And then all of a sudden, as soon as I let it go, I was like, a great weight has been lifted. I'm never going to own a car again. And I never have, Yeah, you know, and, and that was just like a, um, when you shed your old self, when you when you have, or you have that moment of realization of like, I'm an adult now, and I'm going to choose what I'm going to be, and it doesn't include this machine. And and then all of a sudden, I felt so you know light of foot. And and but I didn't. I actually I hadn't really ridden a bike until City Bike arrived, in probably 20 years since like I was a kid, since I was a teenager. And I had just been like you know fine with the subway and the bus and walking around or whatever. And literally the that first time I hopped on a city bike, like, you know, day of, I signed up and whatever. I felt like a kid again. I was like, I am like the wind through my hair and zipping around and having, you know, and just that joyous feeling of like moving around. And, and also I had felt very acutely after, um, especially after 9-11, like that our public space was something very, very precious, very, I was very, um, I don't know, possessive of it. Like it was a very emotional thing. And I felt like, you know, when they had, you know, started to close off, you know, parts of Times Square and, and particularly like I got married in Madison Square Park. And so when they started to build out the traffic bulbs and the, and, and planters and stuff around there, it felt like, well, it, what it was seeing flowers bloom. And, and so, so then being able to, to ride a bike past there felt like being given like childhood back. Like it was such a joyous thing. And it's, it's so ridiculous because it's like, it was also a faster commute to go to work, to clock in, you know, like, it's like, there's all these things that are not, that are very prosaic and are not this like, you know, whatever. It's not poetry. It's just getting where you're going and that's fine. But I did have that moment that like, I cannot lie. It was like, my heart was singing. I'm like, I'm racing through this city that I love and, and, and they have given me 
this part of it for me and not those people just driving through. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember being in Los Angeles and with a friend 20 years ago and we were driving and I said to him, does it ever kind of hit you that, you know, you're in Hollywood, there's the Hollywood sign, you know, there's Grauman's Theater. And he's like, no, I he's like, do you ever really think about seeing the Statue of Liberty every day living in New York? And I said to him, yeah, because I bike over the Brooklyn Bridge and I can see it every day and I kind of almost never yeah. don't appreciate it. Like there's always a moment yeah. when I'm riding over that bridge or the Manhattan Bridge and I see the skyline and I think, oh my God, I live in New York. Like there's the Empire State Building. Yeah. This is pretty awesome. And, and the teenage version of me would be pretty psyched with me right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when I used to travel a lot, every single time I loved, you know, flying into LaGuardia and you have that approach where you're just coming up Manhattan and- and it would just be like, holy shit, I get to live there. Yeah. You know, it was just such a like, it was still exciting. And, and 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 I was sort of like, if that ever goes away, then we have that conversation. Are we going to retire to the suburbs or whatever? And it just never has. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, obviously, is because of your background and, and your professional work in tech. And you kind of exist in this interesting space in the tech world in that it is your job. It, it is a community that you're a part of, but you're also very critical of it, very philosophical about its role in society. And and sort of the reason I wanted to have this discussion, because because I've always felt that there's a lot of overlap between how you talk about the tech industry and how I and my co-hosts, how we talk about safe streets. And there's the very obvious overlap, right, where Uber, Lyft, Amazon, these are tech companies that are having an increasingly dominant role in transportation. They're, they are mm -hmm. clogging up our streets with, with black cars, with delivery vehicles. They are influencing how we get around. There's the sort of deeper and slightly more indirect comparison that I think you hit on a lot of time, which is that you know when, when someone builds an app or some sort of platform, they tend to think, well, this is just a neutral thing, right? Uh, sharing pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, this will be a great way for people to connect online. That's sort of the Facebook pitch originally. But then there are unintended consequences that can quickly overtake the original purpose for that app. Right. With Facebook, like we said, a lot of people came to it because they wanted to connect with old high school friends, share baby pictures. But now, you know, it has a very corrosive effect on democracy. It's an accelerator for conspiracy theories and, and white nationalism. And I was thinking about streets in that sense, too. You know, cars were originally sold as see the USA and your Chevrolet, it's get out of the city, connect yeah, with nature, yeah. family road trips, but they're also an accelerator for social corrosion, climate change. They are literally mm -hmm. a means of dividing Americans, highways through black and brown neighborhoods, especially. Yep. This is not so much a question, but more of like an interesting way in which I think that these two areas really overlap and perhaps explains a little bit of why you're, you dip your toes into this world as much as you do. Yeah, I think there's this part that is that the the promise and the threat are so proximate in all of these systems that we build. And th there was a point, I, I do think, when aside from the sort of you know military justifications of the Eisenhower highway system, there was a, there was a personal freedom argument around the control that a, a family having a car could give you, and it wasn't entirely false. And also, there were people that were intentionally talking about not just building a system that was justified as a Cold War expense, but that was destroying black and brown neighborhoods and Jewish neighborhoods, you know, as it was created. And that was a choice that people made that was very intentional. And they just sort of, you know, tried to elide in describing as, as, as cars arose. 
and and I think of this in a very analogous way, definitely with technology. We're like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is sort of like, you know, all I wanted to do was build an, a social platform where I could be, you know, rating women in a sexist way. I didn't mean to enable fascism around the world, right? And and it's sort of like, you know, that's like just a side benefit that, that that sort of was was an offshoot of this. But also, there are genuine connections. People do genuinely make connections in social media. People actually do feel a sense of presence to being able to see their, you know, their niece or their nephew on Instagram and, and, you know, be a part of their life or, or whatever it is. So like there, there is a part that is like a sincere benefit that I don't dismiss. And I think that's one of the things I, that's the great struggle of all the work I've done in my career is I do still believe that technology can be a force for good. I am not, I don't blanket condemn it. I'm not a Luddite. I mean, I, 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 God, I hope not. I, I <laughs> right, run right. a company that makes that helps you make software. But 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 I I really um, I think that we hear a lot of times who could have foreseen, who would have known, nobody could have known that these harms would happen, and that is just a lie, because people absolutely have always been raising the flag, always been saying this is an issue, and I think you know you look at decades now of of research about what the climate impact of cars was going to be. And people saying, well, we couldn't have known. Well, we did know. And when people say we couldn't have known that surveillance-based, you know, advertising systems on the internet, we didn't think they would lead to the harms that they've led to. We did know. And there were people waving red flags from day one. And 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 I think at one level, it's also, you know, personal accountability for me. I, I feel a great grief and and to some degree guilt that I was one of those people shouting from the rooftops and waving red flags and that I was so ineffectual. You know, we weren't more effective or persuasive really weighs on me in the same way that I feel like someday when my son is older, he's nine years old now, but I think he's going to get older. And he's like, why didn't you do more about, you know, the yeah, climate? That's something that weighs on me all the time. You know, and, and, and I think that that's sort of the exact same way I feel about the technology. And, and, and I think that's a really, it's a heavy weight and, and, um, this, as we are talking, we're, we're just past the 10 year anniversary of um, the movie, The Social Network, uh, which was the dramatization of Facebook's creation. And it's it's not actually super accurate, but there are some parts at the beginning of the film that are that are pretty close to what really happened. And around the time the film came out, The New Yorker did a profile of Mark Zuckerberg that was one of the first really, it was pretty actually gentle, but it was mildly critical of him. Uh, around there when he was still considered this kind of golden boy of technology, the next Bill Gates or whatever. And I got quoted in the story and I, and I said, I mean, I think I had this very tepid, you know, I don't think Mark realizes that he's not right about some stuff. I mean, it was very, almost, it was just this very, it was hardly a slap in the face. And the reaction was if I had said, you know, he should be run out of town on rails. You know, it, it was like, I, in Silicon Valley, like talk to people that were like, you will never work in this industry again. And, and that was really instructive to me was the skin was that thin about the mildest of criticism, even though I felt a thousand times stronger about it, but I felt like I shouldn't be too untoward in the criticisms. And I look back and I'm like, gosh, if we had gone, you know, as hard in the paint then as we do now and talking about what they were enabling, maybe we would have been able to shift things more. And, and, and I feel the exact same way about like, there were things we also didn't know. Like, I do think it is a valid excuse if you are in. 2008 to say, we didn't think that a photo sharing app was going to enable, you know, mass violence and, and be like, yeah, okay. That, that is actually then sure. That is a thing. But as soon as you know that the danger is there, then you have a responsibility to act. And, 
and I draw the direct analogy to the, you know, to our built environment and transportation systems and highway systems, because my father, you know, was the anchor of our family to come here. He came here as an immigrant in 1963. It was before immigration reform had passed in America. The reason he was able to immigrate from India was his skills as an engineer. He came here and got his PhD, became a civil engineer, and he built highways. And it was considered important to the national interest that even though this country has had deep contempt for immigrants, especially Asian immigrants, they would make an exception for him. But we did not know, I did not understand the system that he was building was one that was perpetuating redlining and destroying neighborhoods of the most vulnerable people in America. And they didn't tell him that. This is the reason that you get your visa is because we're going to pitch you against these communities that are the only reason you're even allowed to be here. And that, I think that trade-off, those two things of that, he, you know, my dad has a PhD and he did contribute a lot and he did build things of merit. You know, like I, I think of like, you know, every time I land in Hartsfield Airport or, or SeaTac, you know, Seattle Tacoma, like those are airports he helped build and they're meaningful. He helped work on the foundation of Disney World and <laughs> that has brought millions of people joy, right? And those are good things. And... And the larger system that he was part of victimized people who who he was never warned about or told about. And so I, th- I think that's such a like that dichotomy. And then I look at that and that's a history of now 50, 60 years ago is what's playing out now because we let Indian and Chinese immigrants come in and build the highway system 50 years ago because it was deemed, deemed valuable to the national interest. And now we're letting Indian and Chinese immigrants come into Silicon Valley and build the internet because it's deemed vital to the national interest. And in every case, it is pitting these vulnerable communities against each other at the expense of, you know, black and brown communities at the expense of, of, of communities that have been on the margins. And if we can break out of that cycle, then we can actually do the positive thing that we say we're doing. And I think you also hit on this idea of institutional responsibility versus individual actions, people who are mm-hmm. just cogs in the machine, perhaps, versus the people who really are pulling the levers of power or even just the individual users of technology. You know, I, like I, I am not on Facebook. I got off of it um, in 2018 and uh, I'm mm-hmm. obviously on Twitter a lot. And I, so I can't really say I have some sort of morally superior stance than other people. Right. Um, but every now and then my wife and I will sort of get into a lit because she, she needs to be on Facebook a lot for her work because she manages some of the social media mm-hmm. stuff at her job. And you know, I say like, this is this, this platform that's enabling and sowing all sorts of division, you know, how can you really justify being on it? Right. Like if you were in a bar, you, you, and someone mm-hmm. was screaming racist stuff at the end of the bar and the owner didn't kick them out. Right. Um, you probably wouldn't right. go to that bar again, but at the same time, it's like, that's a little bit too much for me to perhaps put on, on my wife. She needs to use this thing. And, and I think of that in terms of streets in that, I drive to the airport. I, I fly every now and then, but I'm also very concerned about climate change. And I yeah. think of the destructive ways in which cars have transformed our society. It, you know, it's like that cartoon. And yet you participate in society. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> right, right. We, we are all in tra- these things have become so important to our daily lives. Like some people really can't connect with other people or perform their daily functions without using social media of some some sort. In the same way that most Americans can't really live their lives without using a car in one way or another, the the negative mm-hmm. effects sort of you know not negative effects be damned, but they just can't even engage with that. And so when you start to engage with people, 
hey, you know, cars are killing the planet. Um, uh, Facebook is is you know leading to genocide in Myanmar. They they just can't yeah. really square that circle because it cuts too close to home. It's this thing that is wrapped. It's their identity. You know, your car is your yeah, identity yeah. and your Facebook page is your identity now. Well, and there's these things, you know, I think there's so many levels to it. One part is that we are all complicit in unjust systems and, and you know, how do you even reckon with it, right? Because you're not, like, if you're part of society, you're going to participate in some of these things. And and absolutely, I mean, one of those profound examples I think about is the only way that I'm connected with my extended family overseas is through, you know, WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook. and is a platform that did absolutely enable the misinformation that led to a genocide in Myanmar. And if you had told me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would you use an app run by people who enabled genocide? I would think it'd be a pretty easy no. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a moral person. This is, a, this, is a, this is a slam dunk. This is an easy one. And it turns out it's not because it's also a question of what would have to happen for me to be willing to lose the connection to my family that I'd wanted my whole life because they were never part of my life. My, my family in India and, and overseas was not a daily part of my life during my entire childhood because it was not, not even, it, even if it had cost hadn't been a question, there was no infrastructure. There was no technical way to reach them. And now they're part of my life and my son's life and whatever, because these technologies are there. And, 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 and people are always saying to me, they're like, okay, well, you could quit Facebook. You could do whatever. But what about, why doesn't everybody quit? They could just quit. And it's like, I, I think it is too much to ask someone to say, forego talking to your family. And, and the thing is, we actually have navigated this world before, even in the realm of communication, by talking about things that are a public utility or a public service and, and having a conversation about the cultural obligations of people that create these platforms and technologies. And, and so, you know, we had a better answer when it was the arrival of terrestrial radio, when it was the telephone system, when, it, you know, for as imperfect as it was, those were actually much more public goods. And then we've sort of, interestingly, and I think it's no coincidence that Uber presents itself as a technology company, even though it's a transportation company and, and all the other sort of players, because technology intrinsically doesn't have to be ignoring the human, the, the the social interest, the public interest, but the current conceptualization of how you fund technology, the venture capital base, that is deeply grounded in there being, well, I, I guess you could have a, a you know a public concern, but it's an afterthought, it's or it's an acquisition strategy for buying customers, but it's not it's not intrinsic to what you are, and the idea of public technology does not even exist. Like we can't even point to, even though that's where we got the internet from even though that's where we got all these other great technologies from email, everything else in the, in the contemporary imagination. If you say to a young person, can you imagine a public internet? And even, even in the midst of like, you know, the rise of DSA and, and sort of like public discussions of socialism, all these kinds of things. If you say, can you imagine a public internet service, not just the dial up that you're going to have a public, you know, ISP that's going to be your cable provider or whatever, but, but like a public service that was run by the internet, you imagine a, government Instagram, and especially because of the mistrust of government, people can't even fathom the idea. And I think that's really similar to public transportation. Our conversations are often a little skewed by living in New York City, where there is like a deep commitment by the people to the subway system, even if we have our issues with how the government runs it and the the, the trust that Governor Cuomo puts in it or doesn't put in it. Um, yeah. But there is a deep 
we care enough about it to criticize. Right. Yeah. We we love it. We love it a lot, even when we are complaining about it. And Mm -hmm. but in the rest of the country, public transit is, for the the most part, derided. You know, white, wealthy Americans cannot get their heads around what role should the government have in any of this. I think that is very similar. It's a really tough nut to crack. Well, it requires an imagination and it requires an empathy for marginalized people, right? Because every town has somebody who can tell you what is good and bad about their transportation system, their public transportation system, but they're not the people generally that have the voices that get listened to. And even the the conception of what would good transit look like is not a conversation you can have in most of America. The concept doesn't exist. You know, and so so it's it's this sort of the failure of imagination happens one level lower than even yeah because if you said how could you make a better car you know and so we're like okay add some cup holders but that it's because it exists within a, a level that they can have a dialogue with they know what they're responding to you know and 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 you know like I said if you said you know what would be a great social network that would be owned by the people if you're like I don't even understand the question <laughs> it's, it's, such a, it's such a weird w- way to think about it because of, of how we've been taught. And and yeah, we are lucky that in New York, we can at least conceive of that, you know, that, that question, but we don't, but, you know, I've been th- reflecting on this a lot lately, you know, most of um, like especially red state America where I grew up, New York is a myth. New York is a myth that's constructed by media and it is kind of permanently frozen in 1989 Mm-hmm. It is full of those people. Uh, we are useful only rhetorically when uh, being used to advocate for militarism. And our deaths are inconsequential. They're just a political talking point. Whether it was 9-11 or COVID, mass deaths in New York City are bizarrely, like obscenely misused by political forces in the rest of the country to really just advanced the agenda they already had. We wanted to go to war. We wanted to not wear masks, whatever it was. And and to a, to a degree that is just gruesome. It's just ghastly. And when you think about it, that is a life and death conversation they're having and they still can't see us as people. And I, I, I this was very cute to me because they did, um, you know, 9-11 this year, the anniversary, they did a, you know, a jet flyby. And it's like, definitively, the worst thing you could do is fly jets past lower Manhattan. <laughs> it's like it's actually easy it's an easy one to know and so so that that really um very clearly communicates the contempt for uh even seeing us as people and therefore now and we are yet the most authoritative american community to talk about mass transit and to talk about you know futures of transit like as as flawed as it is we're the best at it in this country and so the, like meshing those two things, which is like, well, if they don't even give a damn if we live or die, they're sure as hell not going to listen to us about taking away their cars. <laughs> and so that's that's actually the challenge is like, how do you get them to see us as 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 people, as people whose lives matter, as smart people who actually understand something, as as people whose lives are good, and you know they can't conceive it because it's like you know you have the conversation even with well-intentioned people, they're like, I could never live there. You can't have a yard, and it's like, well. Okay, but you know, and 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 I think we 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 fall into, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. We fall into, you know, platitudes. Well, we get great bagels, and we have good pizza. You know, and, and it's like it's funny, it's true, but it's also this like we have neighbors, we have neighbors 
And we, we don't even press the advantage we have and explain to others, you don't have neighbors. You have other houses <laughs> right. that your house is near, you know, and, and I know it because I lived there, you know, and, and as much as they want to talk about a cup of sugar that they're borrowing from the neighborhood, yeah. it's like, we have neighbors. I know what playlist my neighbors listen to. <laughs> I know, I know, you know, I know wh- which sounds make their dog bark. Like we have neighbors. We are living by people. And that teaches you something. And it is a, it is a, is a thing that upgrades your life and makes you better at, at living your life and caring about people. I always think that when you live in New York City, and I talked about riding over the Brooklyn Bridge before, that like if you don't have patience and empathy for other people, you have to get it fast or you will not survive here. Because if you are annoyed by every last thing that people do here, because we're all stacked on top of each other and bumping into each other all the time, you'll just go crazy. And, and, and you will just say, you know what, I'm moving to the suburbs with my five bedroom house where I don't have to talk to that many people, at least when I don't mm-hmm. want to. But like cities, when they work best, are, are drivers of empathy. And I think there is yeah. a, an analogy there then for, for streets, of building humane, empathetic streets that sort of serve the most vulnerable and that say to the people with the most power, whether that's wealthy white people, people in SUVs, government officials, whoever it is, hey, you you don't actually matter just because of this random piece of identity that you have. You right. you you matter as much as anybody else and and not one bit more and not one bit less. And that when you live in a city, that that sort of does come out of you a bit more. That we we're all sort mm-hmm. of just yelling at each other because we think like who are you to tell me what to do? You know, like that's a that's a very like New York thing. But I also think at the same time, like something that you learn very quickly in New York or in, in any city where you're really bumped up against each other is the power of just saying, you know what, that's not for me. And I think mm-hmm. on the internet, especially, it's very hard for people to do that, to just let a thing lie. We have to have opinions yeah. on everything. Oh, the new yeah. Star Wars is terrible. Um, you know, this new Amazon series, I love it, whatever. But for the most part, like, we just should live our lives saying, hey, it's not for me. You know, like, we don't need to have the strong opinions on a bike lane. You know what? You want to ride a bike? Uh, you know, a thousand other people <laughs> want to ride a bike? Awesome. Yeah. You know, you want to drive a car? Well, we do have to sort of grapple with the, like, geometric and pollution aspects of like how that may or may not work in a city, but I'm not going to judge you as an individual if that's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think there is a real overlap with tech and streets, which, which sort of leads me to my next question is, you know, you've been an observer uh, and you have a lot of opinions on how you build more humane technology that connects people rather than divides them. What, what lessons do you think you might offer or what advice might you offer to advocates, to people who are trying to build more humane streets and more humane cities? Oh, that's a great question. It's, it's a tough question because I, I, I very consciously am a student of safe streets and, and, and successful streets as opposed to pretending to be any kind of authority. But you know, the patterns I've seen in technology and building systems that work, one of the biggest things is um, not coming in with the presumption of a solution. Right. Rather, sort of, can we get consensus on the problem we're solving and then get everybody in the room? And then maybe we will iterate towards the thing that will work. And um, a lot of times in technology, what happens is, is somebody says, like, We got a problem. We, what, the Typing your credit card in, in your web browser isn't secure enough. Okay. We're going to get a bunch of our brightest minds together in a room and they're going to come up with a technical solution to this, a standard solution to it. 
and they do, and inevitably it's a mess and takes years to you know, to to pull together. And, and Google says they want to do this, and Microsoft says they want to do that, and it's a whole battle. And then conversely, the things that have worked really, really well online are when like a couple of people who just build stuff happen to build something, and some other people are like, well, what if we added this to it and we improved it, and they sort of iterate together, and then over a couple of years, you know, after after years and years of like being below the surface and not very well known and not very appreciated, all of a sudden it's ubiquitous and makes everybody's lives better. And I think about that approach of like, uh, you know, uh, whether it is um, the community budgeting, you know, efforts that people do, or this just sort of allocation of not just resource, but but attention and intention, the, the processes are not, still not effective. Like think of who goes to meetings, right? Whether it is, you know, community board meetings or, or like any any planning meeting. It's privileged people who have the time to do it. Yeah, or total cranks. Yeah, right. Like there's sort of nobody in between, right? There's right. either, yeah, there's either like that guy, and that's all he does, or yeah, the people who are like, well, I've I've got somebody to tend to my life while I go and weigh in on this thing. And it's been interesting, especially as we've been all social distancing, and many of these meetings have moved to you know video conferences and, and whatever online. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I could be cooking dinner and be at the meeting. Well, then now I've got an opportunity. You know, now I can participate. And why wasn't that done before? There's no reason. There's absolutely no reason that they couldn't have had to be that easy to participate, that I had to go to the school gym that I never go to and, you know, and navigate by the the wacko guy who's always at the meetings and, and you know, wait for him to finish his rant before I go and do it. And, and so I think our conceptualizations of what it is to really have people participate in designing our built environment and our public spaces are still like decades out of date wildly anachronistic and not just about technology. I'm not saying, oh, if we put everything on Zoom, that's going to fix it all. So if, if I say, you know, uh, I've lived in the East Village basically now for 20 years and I say, oh, you know, this intersection has always been kind of wild, like 14th and 1st has always been kind of wild, um, you know, and, and we know there's these problems with footpaths and we know that there's this long light that people struggle to cross and all this kind of stuff. And they will regularly do a measure and say, oh, okay, you know, 1400 people cross the street here in, you know, an afternoon or whatever it is. And then they'll say, well, how many people participating in a meeting to help reimagine it counts as success? And they'll be like six. six <laughs> right, people, right, right, right. Like, okay, well, what I see in technology is there's nobody on Instagram that, who builds that product, Instagram as, a, as an app, who's like, well, we'll look, we'll ask six users what they think about what we should do. For they'll, they'll literally test it. In their case, a million people will be part of a cohort they're testing with and they'll have it extensively measured and and then they'll do surveys and all that kind of stuff. And granted, Facebook has an infinite budget as a trillion dollar company. So like there are some differences, but but it, if we said, let's set a goal that we are going to have half of all the people that regularly cross the street here have a say in how they want this street to work, what would we do, right? And, and it, all of a sudden, if we reimagine the problem, We've radically shifted the conversation from because because the privilege is there in who gets to participate in the process right now. Then we have the fact that even though the car owners are outnumbered a hundred to one, they get an equal or greater voice in in the conversation. Um, it's it's because we've accepted defeat in the framing of how the solution will be arrived at even before we've started the conversation. I also think there's something interesting in that you know Facebook or Instagram they not only have an unlimited amount of resources, but you know, you and I can both get on Facebook right now or on Instagram and your version of it, the engineers at, at Instagram, they could decide, let's show Anil a different version and see yeah. how often he interacts with it and what he 
pushes and, and what he likes. And what if we change the heart from the lower left corner to the upper right corner? Mm-hmm, and then we mm-hmm. give Doug a different one and his background is blue instead of green. And let's see how, if that changes the amount of time he's engaging with the app. But we can't really do that often with streets unless you're talking about like a quick tactical urbanism project that you run, you know, for a weekend. But a lot of transportation departments are really loath to do that. They don't, they don't have the resources to do that. And you can't run a million iterations of this and right. beta test this a hundred different ways on multiple users. And it's a thing I struggle with all the time. I've sat in some meetings where we are literally talking about changing a street when not 10 blocks away, the very street design we are talking about exists and is successful. And sometimes I think like you're saying, we have to get out of the meeting room and into the street and just walk around mm-hmm. and say, let's mm-hmm. test things. Let's see what works, what doesn't work and have it go from there. And also really to ask, you know, who's not in this room and who needs to be here? Yeah, very much so. And I think, I think you know, it's, it's well, I mean, you know, um, the, the vision we always talk about in the tech world is atoms versus bits, right? And, and, and atoms are really hard to move and bits are really easy to change. And, 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 and that's the reason why we can't test, test, you know, a thousand different variants of a street layout on a thousand different blocks and say which one works the best. But, you know, so I don't dismiss that, that it's not that easy to test variations, but I think um, it is, it, you almost never have a conversation about the design of a street take place on that street, right? And 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 th- just that contextualization of like the truth of what's happening literally on the street, on the ground, um, I, I think I, I think is incredibly powerful. I, I think there's also this sense of... Um, what conveys legitimacy, right? So, so much of our conversation about um, the design of our our streets is is sort of contingent on politics, and like, and that's a necessary thing. And it's absurd because we're you know a, a one party town, and there's still this like immense political uh, narrative to this. But there's actually this. I think there's this countervailing force, which is that. Uh, most people who use the streets don't perceive them as political. It's actually not, you know, um, it's not a partisan issue to them. It's not a power balance issue to them. It's not something that they, um, they don't feel a sense of win or loss for their team when a certain change is made, which is not true of every other political thing, right? If you, if you have the other battles about, you know, all the other things that we fight about, it's very different. Now, now, you know, the, the exception may be the car drivers, but, but, but I think, yeah, they're, they're such a small faction of who is actually using the streets. Yeah. And, and so, so that, that part of it is like, and I don't, you know, this is the thing where like, again, I, I'm very much a student and I don't pretend to any level of expertise here, but that feels like a thing where giving some flexibility and some power to people to do the work themselves to like, kind of, you know, and obviously people aren't going to be like, you know, running out and painting lines on their own, but, it, but I think some sense of like, devolving capability to uh, communities to try things um, that feels like a way forward. And and what what it needs is, is for the people that want it to be a political battle to like, like to be convinced to let it go. Yeah. That it's not theirs to own. This isn't your win or loss that, that actually if you give power to people in their hands, that is you winning and, and feeling empowered. And, and it's interesting because I think there are some analogs in, um, in, in the housing battles that go on, I think there's some analogs in a lot of the other issues that where, where um, a lot of great leaders are really good at devolving power to the people. 
And we just haven't had that moment happen, I think, as effectively in in the conversations about transportation. And this is, again, from an outsider's point of view. I, I'm sure there's somebody that's going to hear me say that and gnash their teeth like, you're ignoring you know, the, all this work that we've done. And I, I am sure that I am not fluent enough in, in some of the efforts that have gone on, but that at a high level is a gap that's visible to me as a, as a lay person. But that's, I think, why I wanted to have you on. You know, I think having perspectives from people who are outside the inside baseball perspective on this is really valuable yeah. and who take their expertise from one area and perhaps apply it to this. Now that can totally devolve when you have someone show up your community board and say, you know, I'm an architect and never in a million years would I design a street this way. You must leave all the parking and they rely on their expertise as a sort of like a cudgel to, yeah. um, you know, derail a, a really good project. But no, I, I think, you know, and tech is very guilty of this. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people that are like, I know how to make an iPhone app. Therefore I should design the transit system for your city. I think it ain't necessarily so. Right. But, I mean, right. You know, putting aside that sort of tech solutionism approach, I do think there is there's something to be said for amateur enthusiasts as a voice of a certain view of of the field. You know, it's funny. I was reading a little bit of your your bio. I've obviously been following you on Twitter for quite some time and, and reading a lot of what you've been writing from the early blogging days, even. Um, and you have a line in your bio that you said, "I work to ensure that tech serves those who are most vulnerable." and that it enables the most people to express themselves. This means that while my work is grounded in tech, it is deeply connected to policy, culture, art, urbanism, social justice, and other domains that tech has historically overlooked. And when I read that, I thought, oh, Anil is actually defining the best possible definition here of what a city is. Um, you know, hmm. a city is a place where the most vulnerable people can come to fully express themselves in the way that they think is best. It means they can experience culture. It means a place where, you know, politics happens at the street level and that social justice is advanced. And, and that to me struck me as like the reason why I wanted to have you on it. It feels like this is infused through your work. Um, so I really do value that, you know, your voice as someone, like I said, who sort of dips his toes into this world every now and then, because I think you are ultimately whether we're talking about tech or cities and streets, we are talking about human interaction. And that, that is sort of where we must come together. Well, thank you. That That's so kind. And that's such a charitable reading of, of that description. I, I, I hope you're right. I hope that is what a city is. And I, you know, the other thing I'd say is, you know, this is outside of my wheelhouse. It's just something I love and care about. But I know so many of the people that you connect to and, and work with and speak to are doing this work every day. And, and it can be thankless and feel like it's not fruitful or it could be frustrating. And and one of the things I think is more than anything I'd love to, you know, to communicate across is so many of us out here, we see it. I'm I'm not an expert in this stuff. I'm just somebody that cares and and wants it to be right. And yet every day I'm inspired by people that just do the work, that show up to the meetings, that talk to their neighbors, that that push and write letters and all the things that happen. And and it makes a difference every time I'm walking down the street and I see, you know, like I said, a little traffic calming is there and somebody put up a sign and there's this new paint that's there and, you know, like very prosaic things, those things, you know, they make my heart sing. And and my wife sort of jokes about like, you know, you'll see a, a reflector attacked on the ground and be like, look at this. It's so cool. And, and I'm totally that person. And I know there's always a person behind it. And so I, I, that just gives me so much hope is that there are people who will see a path that their neighbor is walking and think I can help them down that path. So one last question. You are famously, I, I suppose, a very uh, 
big Prince fan, perhaps like the utmost authority on on Prince, his work and his life. If there was one song that you thought had to represent cities or bikes or transportation, what might it be? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, and he was he liked biking. In fact, I think some of the final pictures of him from Paisley Park before he died were him biking around the estate. Yeah. So 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 um, I will say this. The Prince was a, a huge advocate of biking and of safe streets. He um, he he his uh, studio Paisley Park is in Chanhassen, which is a suburb of of Minneapolis. And uh, he would regularly bike around town. That's how he got around town. Um, and, you know, obviously the Twin Cities are a great biking city, but, you know, um, even in that context, he was a, he was a huge, huge advocate. Um, and, uh, and he would even use bikes to get around like, you know, Madison Square Garden or whatever performance he was playing, like to get to where he was going. That's, that's how he would get there. So, um, yeah, he, he, he was definitely, um, uh, somebody who got it and cared about that stuff. Uh, the one I will think of is, uh, it's a, it's a relatively obscure song, but he did an album in 1991 called Diamonds and Pearls. It was like sort of one of his more commercial albums and it has a song called Walk, Don't Walk. I said walk like you can use the ride. Don't walk with the confidence drive. The theme of the song is essentially walking, you know, to your own beat. Don't And the beat to the song has car horns in it. And I remember hearing it at, I was probably 16 when it came out. And he had incorporated car horns into the song as this almost percussive element. But that to me communicated about like, these are, this intrusion, <laughs> like this is this sort of sullying of this space. Um, and so it's an obscure song. It's, it's, it was no, by no means a hit. It's probably not his greatest composition, but for, for folks who care about streets, I think, I think you could hear in his, in his music that he was somebody that understood, um, you know, the way that all these pieces fit together and that he would tell people to walk the way they wanted to. Anil Dash, thanks for joining the war on cars. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of The War on Cars. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Anil as much as I like talking to him. Hopefully we'll be able to have him back on the show. If you like what you've heard, please pitch in a couple of dollars via Patreon. Go to thewaroncars.org and click on Become a Patreon Supporter. Starting at just $2 a month, you'll get access to exclusive episodes and we'll send you stickers. Big thanks to our top Patreon supporters, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of Akara and White in New York, Drew Raines, and Virginia Baker. You can also check out our online store at thewaroncars.org store, as well as our official bookshop.org page at bookshop.org shop slash waroncars. You'll find books by guests of the show and other titles that we love. And don't forget, you can get 20% off stylish Cleverhood rain gear for walking and biking by going to cleverhood.com slash waroncars. Enter code waroncars, that's all one word, and you'll get your discount. This episode was produced and edited by me. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Design. I'm Doug Gordon, and on behalf of my co-hosts Aaron Napperstack and Sarah Goodyear, this is The War on Cars.